This week's Spotlight is about Australia's own Eva Perron wannabe, Pauline Hanson. Don't cry for me, Argentina. The truth is I never loved you. All through my wild days, my mad existence, I kept my promise. Don't keep your distance. David Marr has just published a quarterly essay about her and One Nation, called The White Queen, One Nation and the Politics of Race. And I started by asking him whether her return is part of the global trend we've seen manifested in Trump and Brexit, or is it specific to Australia? Well, the truth is she never really left us. She was going to an election. She was campaigning every couple of years for 20 years to get back into a parliament, any parliament she could get into virtually. And she kept losing really only by a handful of votes. And she lost because the other parties are all organised against her to make sure that she didn't get the preferences she needed. And what got her back really was a double thing. It was it was the change of rules for the Senate elections and also then the decision to call a double dissolution. She was going to get back once the rules were changed. Because of the double dissolution, she brought a team of One Nation senators with her. But the context of it all, the context of it all is the deep disillusionment in Australia at the moment with the principal political parties. And I think that's much more important than comparisons with the international scene, with Brexit and with um, with Marine Le Pen in France and with Trump. The pattern is there, something of the pattern is there, but nothing like the numbers. What's the real context for her re-election is a combination of deep pessimism about the future and real fury at the conduct of politics in this country. So how much of the coalition's base do you think has transferred to One Nation at this point? She doesn't create a constituency. She musters it. And yes, she has pulled away a few percent of the coalition's base. Look, it's probably about six to seven percent, something like that. But the thing about Pauline Hanson, unlike the Greens at the other end of the political spectrum, is that when the votes go to her, they don't go back again neatly. Greens, votes go to the Greens, they go back to Labor. That makes the Greens have relatively little impact on day-to-day politics in this country. But Pauline Hanson, when you vote, when you leave the coalition, and increasingly these days when you leave the Labor Party, she's a bridge to send the votes elsewhere. They move on. And that's what makes her dangerous. That was for, particularly for the coalition, a little bit for Labor, because it does eat into the base. I mean, there seems to be double that 6 or 7% in Queensland and definitely more, according to the recent, most recent polls, for over 50. So she's, she's got particular constituencies, doesn't she? Both geographically she and demographically. But I think the demographic shift has been misinterpreted. I think we're both talking about the most recent news poll. Yeah, that's right. And... The party has always been strongly skewed to the old. And in fact, those figures that Newspol have brought up suggest to me that there is an increased skewing to the young. A party that had, you know, a party that was an old person's party is increasingly becoming a party where the under 45s are willing to vote for Pauline Hanson. But certainly the geographic, um, the geographic base of the party is, is, incredibly strong. 16% in Queensland at the moment. 
It's where One Nation was formed. It's always been One Nation's power base, and it is so again. And, you know, I think, I think it's pretty clear what it is. It's education. It's education. One Nation voters, nearly all of them leave school before, you know, they don't finish school. Um, hardly any of them ever go anywhere near a, um, a campus. Um, they have qualifications. Lots of tradespeople vote for One Nation. But the most common pattern that unites the One Nation voter with the Brexit voter with the Trump voter is modest education. And Queensland, alas, has historically a pretty shocking record in education. Things have been fixed now, but but it was always an education system that spewed people out young. Pauline Hanson herself left when she was 15, and her parents had done the same. And that's the common experience of most of the people who vote for her. And Queensland, alas, has really the worst education record um, in Australia. That, I think, is a strong is a strong reason for Queensland not only being her base, but Queensland being the incubator of some strange political movements over the decades. In fact, you point out in the essay that um, a lot of the voters are under 45, which tends to contradict what the news poll is saying about the base being also over 50. Look, it's just a way in which the news poll people, they've looked at that figure, which is a dramatic figure, but they've looked at it without the history the history shows they're skewing younger now rather than older. Speaking of history, you remind us of the preference deal that was pushed by John Howard in 1998 in Queensland, which turned out to be a disaster, but it, it was in some ways similar to what happened in WA recently. Alan, it's brought, it's, it's made me think one of the things we don't look at enough in analysing politics is the power of forgetting. The lessons, lessons learned just get forgotten. And 20 years later, the same mistake is made. The mistake made in Western Australia is the same mistake made in Queensland in 1998 with the same impact, which was the Liberal Party does a deal with one nation. The net of, one effect of this is Liberal Party voters are disgusted and go elsewhere. Another effect is that one nation doesn't actually have the party apparatus to deliver on preference deals. They have, hardly anybody belongs to this party. They can't man polling booths. In Western Australia, Liberal Party people were handing out how to vote One Nation cards at a lot of polling booths because they just can't deliver on those promises. The other thing is that One Nation voters don't like to be corralled in this way. So the whole thing was a disaster. And in particular, a great setback for her. I mean, she got her members of the upper house. That was always what she wanted. And she achieved that. But she showed to her followers that she, like them, is just a politician. And for a person who claims to be a fresh face in the system, the the anti-politics politician, it was a very revealing moment for her followers to realize that she was aiding and abetting a hopeless attempt to keep in power a spent liberal government. She's now said she won't do it again. Yeah, well, in fact, since then, things have got a bit messy for the party. And there are all these people leaving and they've had this four corners about the plane uh, and James Ashby. Things seem to be going badly, but then uh, the polls seem to suggest that it doesn't matter. One of the things about this woman is that she can, at least for quite a long time, survive catastrophe, even humiliation. And she, she's a plugger. You cannot but 
you cannot help admiring this woman's resilience and her self-belief and her determination to succeed. It's phenomenal. But since the West Australian election, as you say, um, she's come under sustained attack from candidates who left her, from people who no longer support her, from old organisers that she sacked, um, and from this inquiry about who owns that damn Jabiroo that she flew around Queensland on the Fed Up Tour. Remember that? It was the Fed Up Tour, piloted by James Ashby. Who owns that plane? Who should have declared it? What's its status? And this is the... Do you know? I don't know the answer to that question. It will emerge, but... You referred to it in your essay as James Ashby's Jabiru. That's right. I, I and do. I presume you thought it was. I did think it was. My information was that he owns it. He claims to own it. But at the moment, he seems to be unable to produce any papers to prove that he owns it. So that's back in the wash, that one. There's always from the start with One Nation being problems about money, about whose money it is, where the money goes, what accounts it's in, what's the basis of it where the public funding for her elections goes. She's received, since she first appeared in politics, about $7 million in public funding, some of it to her party, some of it to herself. This, the money issue with One Nation is um, a rich area for scrutiny. Someone described it to me as a pyramid scheme. Do you think there's a, a basis on which to describe it as that? I can't see how on earth it can be a pyramid scheme because nobody gets paid. It's not as though... No, no, but in the sense that everybody who, who stands for or becomes part of it has to contribute money and then they have to collect money from somebody else. Well, yeah, I wouldn't remotely call it a pyramid scheme. I mean, they are expected to, to fund their own election campaigns. There's a promise that if they get enough votes for public funding to come through, they'll get three quarters of their expenses back. Um, they have to get all their printing done in James Ashby's printing works. There are neat schemes within the party about how to fund their own operations. But I wouldn't call it a pyramid scheme because there are no dividends flowing out. No, all right. Well, look, uh, just going back to 1998, I mean, after that Brisbane um, preference deal disaster, Howard then got came to his senses, as you relate, and in fact played the race card again for which he'd previously been sacked. And you say that he then made, by that method, made Pauline Hanson redundant at the time. But is that what the party has to do this time? But anyway, take us through what happened back then. Well, back then, Pauline Hanson, of course, was, was endorsed as a Liberal Party a candidate for the unwinnable seat of Oxley. She was sacked because she wrote a letter to the local paper in which she had some very forthright things to say about the need to punish Aboriginal offenders. Um, now, what she was saying, John Howard didn't disagree with that, but she was an embarrassment for the campaign. John Howard didn't disagree with a great deal of what she had to say. He was of the same view as her about the political dangers um, of Asian immigration. He was of the same view of her, as her, that he had to cut back hard on aid given to Aboriginal groups. Um, he had to cut back hard on the WIC um, High Court decision um, on native title and he also had to cut back hard on immigration and refugee issues. Now, these were all issues that she was campaigning on. He agreed with a great deal of them. They became part of, they, they became part of the law in this country. And that was even before 1998. But after 1998, things got much tougher on the refugee front. Both came in greater numbers. And when John Howard 
I was there in the room. You may have been as well, Alan. I was there when he said, we shall decide who comes into this country. That was a pricey of what Pauline Hanson had said in her maiden speech. If I've got a right to decide who comes into my house. That was in 2001 with Tampa. That's right, 2001 with Tampa. She was off the scene by that time, but nevertheless, her voters were still around and he went down that path. And it was, and Hanson had chopped the first track through that jungle to the objective that Howard reached with infinitely more political finesse, of course, but she'd shown the way. Immigration has never gone away as an issue, of course, but it swung, and this is what Pauline Hanson seems to have harvested, it swung towards Muslims rather than Asians now, and that's something you've kind of described quite clearly. It's interesting, isn't it, that the kinds of waves of disgust that greeted Hanson 20 years ago when she was putting in the boot into Aborigines, and really... And really, it was Aboriginal Australians rather than Asians who were a principal target back then. That wave of disgust doesn't really um, appear as strongly when, from 2006 onwards, she starts to put her boot into, into Muslims. There's a kind of weird respectability about attacking Muslims in the politics of Australia today, um, even though, um, you know, even though it's, to my view, it's, you know, wildly exaggerated, cruel, divisive, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, unjustified. But, but it's been a good, it's been a good um, uh, truck for her to ride back to power. But the really interesting thing about immigration is how powerfully enthusiastic this country is for multi-ethnic immigration. And this is so unlike the Brexit situation and so unlike the American situation. Gallup polls did a world survey a couple of years ago asking people what they thought about the scale of immigration. 70%, 70% of Australians said they were happy with the large numbers of immigrants coming to this country. And a lot of those people were also saying it should even be increased. In Britain, it's directly the reverse. 70% of, of, of Britons um, are furious with the levels of immigration. So she doesn't have that tsunami to ride. She's, she is working the race angle in a country which is actually, for the most part, profoundly sympathetic to multiculturalism, to the size of the immigration intake, and to the changes that's bringing to Australian society. She represents the rump that doesn't. That doesn't give her anything like the voter power that the same kinds of campaigns are giving the Trumpists, Marine Le Pen in France, Gert Wilders in the Netherlands. The, the numbers are not there for her, and yet, and yet, so much is so she is getting so much out of the political system at the moment. That's for me the the most interesting contradiction of this woman. She's 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 a disruptor, but she's not a mighty popular force. Yet she's being treated almost as though she is. Well, in Europe, of course, Gert Wilders, Wilders and um, Marine Le Pen are seriously described as maybe becoming the leader of the country. That would never happen. Wilders didn't. No, he... and there was, but there was talk about before the election that he might. At the moment, for instance, Marine Le Pen's support in France seems to be running at about 27%, 28%. And Pauline Hanson's support in Australia is running at 10%. Now, that's a big difference. That's the difference between a remotely possible leader and a disruptor. Pauline Hanson is a disruptor. Um, and a big part of the argument of my quarterly essay is that we should treat her for what she is. She's 
Aussie-born and bred, it's an Australian political problem that she represents, and she doesn't have huge numbers. We can, the handsome challenge is not something that we should be scared of. We should just address it. You write that we shouldn't ask whether Australia is a racist country. The proper question is to ask what role race plays in our politics. Yes. So perhaps you could explain to us what that is. Well, I don't think... What's the answer? The answer, the answer, and this is what made me want to do the essay in the first place. I was, I'd actually embarked on the essay some time ago before Pauline Hanson wandered back on the stage. To, just like her, Alan, she always seizes the limelight. The good figures about this country's attitude to race are so good. And yet the politics of this country continues to, to skew towards those of us who are disturbed, unhappy, and in some cases enraged by the presence here of other races. And, and my view is that it's, it's, this is a dogfight for votes on the far right, which imperils, um, imperils centrist politics in this country. We're a centrist country. We're all, you know, all, nearly all of us are somewhere scattered around the centre. And part, I think, of the reason why there is this historic um, sort of uh, disappointment with the way in which politics is being conducted in this country, part of it, is the sight of political parties scrambling for votes amongst the Hansonites on the very far right of the National Party, on the very far right of the Labour Party, when the real strength of this country and its mood and its kind of character are all in the centre. And that's a big part of the purpose of this essay is to argue that we should bring politics back to the centre. But what about the argument about 18C of the Racial Discrimination Act? How do we locate that in what you've been examining? Well, it's an old complaint of, of people like Hanson, and it's an old complaint of people out on the fringe that the Racial Discrimination Act forbids them to speak their minds on race. Now, the evidence for this is extremely scant, but it's a strongly held belief. And this was taken up by the Australian newspaper, and so it's become several things. The battle over 18C is partly a press campaign. Part of the purpose of that press campaign is to wedge the left and to try this argument, which I think is risible, that the left are the natural enemies of free speech in this country. I've been writing about free speech in this country for 20 or 30 years. I know where the enemies of free speech are. And yeah, there may be one or two out on the left, but by God, <laughs> that's not where the enemies of free speech are. Um, and the third thing is it's also an appeal to the Hanson vote. And it's very interesting. There are several laws in this country which limit abusive speech to of, about, say, the disabled or the old or people like me, homosexuals. Nobody's complaining about those, those laws. They're only complaining about laws that restrict people's right to vent on race. That's what makes me completely confident that the central purpose of this 18C debate is to play to the far-right race vote in this country. And the danger of the coalition becoming involved in this, that a great chunk of the coalition vote is not Anglo-Australian-born Australians. The coalition is the natural party 
of successful families of Chinese and Indian background in this country. They are playing with their own future when they pander to the race vote in this way. And I was very surprised in the end that Malcolm Turnbull did, did his 18C gambit because it's dangerous for them. And you will have seen, we all saw, that nearly every ethnic council in Australia came out against it. And they remember those things in the fringe electorates of the big cities which are held by Liberal Party um, candidates. Do you think he was sort of consciously trying to do what Howard did back in the late 90s? To move into Pauline Hanson's territory? Yes. If he is, look, I don't know what's in Turnbull's mind in these things. I just don't think he has a strong strategic grasp of of the the, the middle distance of politics. He deals with some um, scraps and confusions as they as they come up on a week by week basis. But when he next takes <laughs> he does. Australia, that's true. When he next takes Australia to the polls, he is going to have to defend a pointless gambit which he knew was going to lose, which involved, which interests a very small number of Australians. I mean, a very small number of Australians want to see these changes. I myself want to see a few changes to ADNC, but very, very few people want this. And yet it, it makes a quite large constituency in this country fearful and distrustful of the coalition. I cannot see why he did it. Because, I mean, Tony Abbott, Tony Abbott really wanted to do it. And he listened to the wisdom of the party that said, don't, you will enrage so many people who are natural liberal voters. And he pulled back and Turnbull pushed on. The other part of the earth that has shifted since Pauline Hanson's first incarnation is social media. You pointed out something quite interesting, which was the percentage of voters who accessed the party website. And for the Liberals, it's 14%. For One Nation, it's 34%, which yes. does suggest that, the, that social media has become terribly important in the success of One Nation. It's now important right across politics, of course, but it's particularly important for One Nation. And without being unkind... That is an even higher take-up of social media if you consider that One Nation voters are, are a bit old and not necessarily you know, what social media savvy, but they go to the website and they go there because they get straight to her. She's not being interpreted through newspapers and television. She doesn't give very many newspaper and television interviews. They go straight to her. And what's fascinating for people like me, who want to analyse what One Nation is really up to, is to look at the posts that cause the most excitement amongst her followers. And I went through the, the whole mountain of material in the four months before last year's elections to see what lit up One Nation, and it was nothing about economics. I mean, she very rarely says anything about economics. All this analysis that she represents a generation that have been left behind by globalization, etc. As far as I can see, that's rubbish. I mean, and she has no policies to address it. But out there on her Facebook, when she talks about race, immigration, terrorism, it lights up. That's really the center of this party. There's a big protest element in it. You know, people couldn't give a damn what she stands for. They just want to give the finger to the Liberals, the Nationals and Labour. But at the core of One Nation is just this obsession with race. 
I've been talking to David Maher, author of the quarterly essay, The White Queen, One Nation and the Politics of Race.